Thank you for listening to a Quiet Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. No, all good. Every opportunity to speak to you guys, whether on a Sunday morning, on Lord's Day, or tonight, is a blessing and an honor. I aim tonight to ask and begin to answer a lot of questions. A list of questions for me that I generated as I was trying to think through this topic. Beginning to do that takes a moment, but finishing that would take the rest of our lives. So I can't be comprehensive, but I can be direct. My first two questions, just as a refresher, why are we doing these sorts of topical classes in addition to our Lord's Day expository teaching? And why are the topics of this lecture series important? So to set this up, I want to quickly describe the way we normally approach the teaching of the scriptures on the Lord's Day gathering, and then distinguish that from what we're doing here right now in these quarterly classes. The Bible describes itself this way in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Peter 1.20 says that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Our church and our Sunday gatherings practices expository preaching and teaching based on exegeting the word. Two important words that I just said there, and I want to break them down a little bit. Expository. It's similar in sense to the word expose. And expository means to explain. So every Sunday, we are exposing and explaining the Bible, book by book. And we must expose the scriptures rather than hide them. When the so-called Catholic Church persecuted Bible printers like William Tyndale with posses, fire, and vengeance 600 years ago, they were attempting to hide the scriptures from the average plowman. Unfortunately, many people today do hide and suppress the scriptures still. And that's when Tyndale uttered his famous words, and he was saying them in response to a Catholic scholar over dinner. I defy the Pope in all his laws, he said. If God spare my life, heir of the ears, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. When the world or even so-called churches demand that we hide the scriptures or insist that we ignore the scriptures, calling them outdated or prod us to even be slightly embarrassed by the scriptures, we must rather expose the scriptures. When our people gather together on the Lord's Day, we must also explain the scriptures. And when we explain the scriptures, it's best to avoid taking them out of context. As a normative practice, we instead walk through these books of the Bible together, verse by verse. This is all in the aim to respect the original context so that we can faithfully exegete 
the scriptures. And there's our second word, exegesis, not ex-Jesus, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. Next week, I'm going to bring more notes. <laughs> I didn't have time to make as many today, or I would definitely be giving you these things on point by points. To exegete something is to draw the meaning or interpretation out of the text. The opposite of that is to read our own trendy innovations back into the text. You could be just really on a kick about a certain fad right now, and so you see it everywhere you look in the scriptures. You can read that baby into it. Reading something into the scriptures, that's how false teachers or accidentally ignorant Christians make the text say whatever they want them to say. It's also referred to as twisting scripture. Sadly, people twist up, cloud up, and make the scriptures less easy to understand. Rather than explain, they confuse. Rather than bring clarity, they muddy the waters. And this often happens through the use of topical sermons. Where on any given topic, the preacher strings together some verses that they think support a position. The preacher then takes them out of context, and they make an argument for whatever they're already passionate about. And whatever they're passionate about could be completely against what the scripture in its totality actually teaches. So topical sermons, or even topical angels, uh, lectures, sorry, can be dangerous. But if done rightly, they can be profitable. So how do we do it rightly? If we respect the Bible in our time here, and if we exegete our verses carefully. Now, topical teaching can be useful for these class settings such as lectures, because on Sundays for 52 weeks per year, we're only teaching through one biblical book at a time. And we're going verse by verse. So not, no one single biblical book addresses every single subject within its bounds. And in the life of a church or the life of a family, we'll occasionally need to address certain things as topics. We would do well to be well-rounded, to aim our guns where the fight really is right now. We know where the fight really is, by where we need teaching, where we need reproof, where we need correction and where we need training in righteousness. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. And I might describe this particular series that we're doing right now under training in righteousness. So back in the fourth quarter of 2022, we addressed the topic of the church. What is the church? What are biblical elders? What are biblical deacons? What are biblical church members? This was important to us because there are so many ideas out there, good and bad, about what the church is supposed to be and how it's supposed to work. We felt it was important to spend time explaining the scripture's teaching on each role in the church. So we have some ideas in the tank for what we can address in April, July, and October this year. And we'd love your feedback for topics that would be helpful to our church in the future. We are especially thinking about the topic of marriage and apologetics, as Jared and I were just talking about a second ago. And we're starting to chart out, in our heads at least, how classes on both of those topics in the future could go. So right now, we're aiming our guns to where we sense the fight is. The fight is for our families. 
And one place we can drill down and attempt to offer encouragement is by going deep into the topic of the regular rhythms of family worship. So what, what have we covered so far in our lecture series? So far, Jared took the lead last week, thank you Jared, and taught on the concept of Christian family culture. First, we heard from Jared about the creation mandate in Genesis 1, and Jared later connected that to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So mankind was made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. He called them good, gave them dominion over the earth, and gave them the mandate to multiply, filling the earth and subduing it. So on day six, God creates the concept of marriage. On day six, God creates the concept of the family. We were made to be perfect, sinless images of God ruling the earth. Competent, righteous humanity ranging across the perfect world in the billions. All made up of loving families and extended households with godly family cultures. That's how it was supposed to go. But we messed it up. In Adam, we failed to protect our household from the lies of the enemy. We rebelled against God, our creator and our king. We knew this sin would cost us our lives. So we became dead inside. And death became the debt we owed. As we see with Cain and Abel... Family culture in the household became a place of death rather than the miniature economy of hope it was meant to be. And as extended households break down and family culture deteriorates, the earth becomes a worse and worse place. Now regarding our sin, God the Father is just, so he must punish our sin. But he is also love, so he sent God the Son Jesus to become fully human while divine, live a sinless life in our place, and be punished in our stead. As Christ died on a cross for our sins, he received our punishment, paying our debt, and he freely gave us his own righteousness. He then rose from the grave, defeating death. And now everyone who repents and believes in Jesus will not perish, but will have everlasting life, forever changed by God the Holy Spirit, who fills and forms us to become more like Jesus today and each day after. And after all he had accomplished, Christ ascended to heaven, leaving his people a great commission to make disciples while we await the day he returns and his kingdom comes in its fullness. Last week, Jared mentioned that even in our rebellion, God's creation mandate wasn't revoked. Now in Christ, we are taught how to properly obey God in fulfilling the original creation mandate how to lead our families in godly family culture, and how to ultimately inherit the earth. Jared went on to cover Ephesians 5, 23-23, and he walked through the biblical instructions for the household. He explained how the worldview of the Bible never sees children as anything but a blessing. He then covered the concept of Ephesians of bringing up our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We briefly talked about the practical implications of even things like spankings, timeout, homeschooling, catechism, and the concept of family worship. And we started to touch on that. 
And after that, we, we shared a few examples of upbringing and discipline in our own homes, as well as sharing a little of how some of us do family worship in our own homes. So now that brings me to my topic tonight. Let's talk specifically about the topic of prayer, and then we're going to relate that back, especially more in Sermon 2, to family worship and our daily life in prayer. So how I tend to think about things, how I tend to break things down, I want to go back as far as I can to the most basic question that I can ask. What is prayer? I'm going to give what I think is a fairly okay biblical description of it, and then I'll explain how I got there. Prayer is speaking, singing, writing, thinking, groaning, or gesturing in faith to God. Singing, oh, sorry, speaking, singing, writing, thinking, groaning, or gesturing in faith to God. Most normally, speaking to God in faith. Now, the reason I'm saying in faith, it's not necessarily because of God's invisibility. Jesus, he's at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus can certainly see the Father right now. And Jesus is praying or interceding to the Father for us right now, as Romans 8.34 says. The Holy Spirit has no problem seeing God the Father. And he prays to the Father for us when we're not sure what to pray, as Romans 8.26-27 says. So clearly, as the Bible teaches, the persons of the Godhead talk to one another, and that's described in these moments as them praying. So what I'm getting at is it's not just about seeing or not seeing. Another example, the first family, Adam and Eve. They were a praying family. They had perfect communion with God. They spoke to God as individuals, but yes, also as a family. Adam was Eve's covenant head, and the two were one flesh. They they lived together, they worked together. She was his helpmeet. They spoke to God together. Now, the reason I'm saying it's done in faith is just because just talking to God can be done without faith. It's done all the time by pagans. They rage against God, as is described in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? They hate him. Even Satan is capable of talking to God. He talked to Jesus for a while in the wilderness, as we remember. And in Job, it seems like a character named Satan certainly talked to God for a while, and he wasn't exactly in faith. But that sort of talking is not worshipful. It's, it's not done in faith. Hebrews 11, 1, it teaches that faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. That isn't just to say that people are assured of something. It also means that there are things that people actually hope for. It's not just that you believe something exists, but it's also conviction. Hebrews 11.6 reads that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Once more, not just believing that God exists, Atheists believe that God exists. They just suppress that, and they just rage. The demons believe that God exists, and they tremble. 
it's also believing that he rewards those who seek him. The faith through which we pray is repentant. It's not just believing in God, but trusting him. So biblically, prayer is most often speaking. Let's talk about the speaking part for a second, because we can always just assume things about what this stuff is. In Acts 4.24, it reads, When they heard this, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Spoken words. And again, that's hardly surprising, because we find examples of people speaking to God in the Bible more times than we can count. Our, in fact, our God is a speaking God. He created everything we see and everything we don't see by his words. He says, let us create man in our image in Genesis 1. And there's Adam from the dust of the ground. But consider this. The first words that Adam hears are from the mouth of God. And being made in God's image, Adam is a speaking creature. We desperately want to speak from the time we're born. But we don't know how. So instead, as babies, we cry or we giggle or we moan or we gesture until we finally learn how to speak. In my kids' case, they're always looking at us and going, they want to say it, but they can't say it. They want to talk, but they can't. So it's just, and that's all of our frustration. Speaking is, it's wired into us. Speaking to God was the first speech that humanity ever tried. And prayer, technically speaking, is the easiest thing in the world. You were made to do it. And Adam, you did it the very first thing. But people don't struggle with prayer for technical reasons. Adam and Eve spoke to God, easiest thing ever, until we rebelled. Then we hid from him, and we weren't so keen to talk to him. Their sons, Adam and I'm sorry, uh, their sons Cain and Abel, they spoke to God throughout their lives. You notice that in Genesis. Cain is just talking to God, and God's talking right back. And Hebrews deals with the difference between Cain and Abel's relationship with God, because remember, they're both talking to God. Hebrews 11.4 says that by faith, Abel offered God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So Cain and Abel, they could both speak to God. But only one of them was speaking to God in faith. The other was just speaking to God. Abel trusted, and Cain raged. And humanity has been split both ways ever since. Believers and ragers. I have to stop and mention that there's, there's more than one way of speaking, too. Biblically, you can sing or you can write prayers. In Psalm 3, David writes, Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. This is a written prayer from David to God. And an imprecatory prayer at that. I like that word, imprecatory. More of that next week. That is a, that's a sort of prayer where you're asking God to deliver justice to evildoers. Break their teeth, literally. Or in Psalm 4, it says, For the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of David, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. 
So while David is saying that, stringed instruments are accompanying him. I feel like a banjo sort of there for a second. It's, violins wouldn't have been around for like 2,500 more years. So I always want to say when stringed instruments, oh, it's a violin. No, no. Nor was it a cool Spanish guitar. That would have been fun. Um, likely harps or harp variants are involved here. But you know, those harpists may have been really good. David was apparently really good. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't probably as simple and silly as you might think. It was probably beautiful to listen to. So there's background music to this prayer. Maybe he's just, maybe he's just talking with background music. If you've ever heard those sermon jams, John Piper will be talking, there'll be music playing behind him. Do we know for sure David's actually singing, though, in his prayer? Maybe not there. Psalm 96 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Okay, so definitely singing there. Lots of singing. So prayer can be written. It can be spoken. It can be singing. Can prayer just uh, be a matter of thinking rather than speaking, writing, or singing? As a kid, I wondered about that. And I don't know because I always wanted to say it out loud or else I didn't think it counted. Psalm 139 says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Verse 4 says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. The sense is that Based on who God is, he knows everything already. So even if you don't verbalize what you want to say, he already knows what you're thinking. And therefore, your very innermost thoughts are accessible to him. That's astonishing. And it's terrifying. Because righteous thought-based prayers as well as evil meditations can abide in the same heart on the same day. And God receives them all from everyone. If I can encourage you, though, I tend to think that God only hears the prayers I verbalize, and that's a problem. I fall into the trap of thinking he only answers those But the scriptures teach that God also hears and responds to prayers we've never spoken out loud. I think Psalm 34 speaks to this when it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Should we verbalize things out loud? Yeah, it's a a good practice. And we should make that our primary form of prayer as we are able But recognize also that God, he's already well aware of your heart's prayers. And if you are seeking first the kingdom of God, or perhaps another way of saying that, delighting yourself in the Lord, be comforted in the knowledge that God replies to those unspoken prayers. Now this ties into the idea of prayer by groaning. Yeah, groaning. I don't literally mean that you're making a groaning noise per se. I I might think that prayer by groaning is more like, more like this. First Samuel one ten says this about a woman named Hannah. 
she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So, quick context, she, infertility issues. She wanted a child. She didn't have one. She goes years wanting this. And one night, wept bitterly, prayed to the Lord, deep, deep distress. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed, observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. So he is, he's berating her, thinking that she is some common street urchin who's been uh, having a little too much and doesn't belong there. In reality, she, I can't think of anyone who belonged there more than her in that moment. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in her eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So recapping for a second, prayer is speaking, singing, writing, thinking, or groaning. This is, this is the sort of prayer where you have poured out your soul. But you're no longer lifting up your voice like the apostles did. You're no longer singing like David did. You're not writing down any words like David the psalmist was. Sometimes... All we have left to offer is our physical presence and our emotional state, just our longing. But we're still just putting ourselves out there. And God knows what you're going through. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So you have no words or clear thoughts left, then the Holy Spirit can give you something better than words. He can give you the gift of praying to God on your behalf in a way that our words can't even comprehend. Putting ourselves out there to God in faith is better than the alternative. And this sense of posture or physical positioning or, or presence, this ties into my last point, which is gesturing. Prayer is speaking, singing, uh, writing, thinking, groaning, or gesturing in faith to God. I'll tell you what I mean. In Luke 8.13, Jesus tells a story of a tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, 
He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here the prayer gesture is the beating of the chest. And Jesus draws attention to that as meaningful. He's not just saying that the man had his eyes down and said it. He, in the story, uses it as a way to illustrate the man's prayer and what it was like and what it meant. Another more common sort of gesture. Esther 4.1, it says that when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, by the way, what had been done was the death warrant of all Israel had been signed, so everyone was about to experience a holocaust by the hands of the people of Persia. They were all going to take their homes, kill their children, kill their wives, burn the stuff that they didn't want, take whatever they wanted. And Mordecai just heard of this. His response, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Whether Mordecai himself was perfectly praying, because it doesn't necessarily comment on his inner life or his spiritual state in the book of Esther, even if his heart wasn't in the right place, these three behaviors, tearing clothes, donning sackcloth, putting on ashes, they're not presented in the Old Testament as a, as a bad thing. It's not presented as a, a strike on him that he did that. In Jonah 3, 5 through 8, the people of Nineveh, they do this as a gesture of repentance too. And it's apparently significant because God had threatened he was going to destroy the city, much like a Sodom and Gomorrah sort of thing. It's going to go in a few days, so get ready. Jonah was quite excited for this. And the people, their response was sackcloth, ashes. Their response was repentance and wailing, and this was a part of that. It was apparently significant because God spared the city. Also, Revelation 4.10, it gives a picture of a powerful gesture. The 24 elders fell down before him who was seated on the throne and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. They cast down their crowns before the throne. So here the posture of the elders is reverent, worshipful, bowing such that they're falling on their faces before God and they're casting their symbols of authority and wealth at his feet. Another example of gesture as a prayer component. 1 Timothy 2.8 says, see this is familiar, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands. Body language makes a difference somehow. I could maybe speculate on if lifted hands signal surrender, like he would surrender to the police, uh, or hopeful expectation, like, God, I'm, I'm ready to receive whatever you would have for me, good or bad. Or maybe it harkens back to Moses, who had to keep his rod high during a battle, symbolizing God's power being on our side. Or maybe it symbolizes lack of hostility, since it's mentioned in the context of there being no quarreling. Ultimately, I'm not sure. I just know that this positioning of the body during prayer can be important. And Paul desired that men do it in every place, no matter what the local customs may be. Another pair of these prayer postures sorry, is in Daniel. Daniel 6.10 says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, this is, there's a theme here 
uh, in this case, a document had been signed that was going to lead to another um, horrible thing happening to God's people, this time to anyone who praised anyone but the king of Persia. They're going to be thrown into a lion's den. So, much like the story of Esther, something horrible had happened, and God's people, what do they do? They pray. When Daniel knew that God, the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber toward Jerusalem. That's interesting. He got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed, and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So, so far we've seen eyes lifted towards heaven versus eyes towards your feet. That was in the tax collector story. The, uh, the publican, the man who was happy to be there, he was um, lifting his eyes up, and he was bragging on himself. The tax collector was beating his chest and had his eyes either down or closed. And we've seen prayers where you're falling on your face, like the elders do. We've seen prayer from Daniel on his knees and specifically facing Jerusalem. That doesn't mean we have to do likewise. These are descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. But the body positioning and direction was a component of the story. It was, it was important. It was worth mentioning. Or even 1 Corinthians 11.14 Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Whew. And I'm not weighing in on the no doubt interesting subject of head coverings in any way whatsoever right now. Except to say that in 1 Corinthians, Paul indicated that either covering or uncovering the head during prayer was a physical behavior that carried weight for the Corinthians. And it spoke to honor or dishonor in some way. Or James uh, 5.14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So here the elders are praying over someone, which suggests that they're gathered around that person. And they're using anointing oil. So during the prayer, someone is involving a physical substance and they're applying it to another person's forehead the gesture matters. Or even uh, 2 Samuel 6.14. David, I love this one, he, he danced before the Lord with all his might. As a Baptist, I am forbidden to comment on dancing, but it's there. So even though I'm not suggesting we have to make it a part of the worship service to have official dancers, I'm definitely not suggesting that. It, it would just seem that it... <laughs> You ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> At least once in the scriptures, this was an accepted gesture as part of David's praying life. God saw it and he was pleased. Incidentally, of all the things we've described, speaking, singing, writing, thinking, groaning, or gesturing in faith to God, King David of Israel seems like one of those people who had major experience in all of those things. That might be one reason why he was considered a man after God's own heart. He was a praying man. And he prayed in every way you can pray. It may be a big reason why so many of his prayers are kept for us to read in the Bible to this day. Back to gestures for a moment. I could mention the laying on of hands here. Or even taking the Lord's Supper. Or being baptized as specific, ordained gestures of prayer 
in which we involve our bodies and physically do something as a component of that prayer. In 1 Peter 3.21, Peter describes baptism as an appeal to God for a good conscience, which sounds like prayer to me. Even fasting is a gesture towards God if done rightly. And if done rightly, it's supposed to intensify our prayers. So coming back to the definition I've been laying out, prayer is speaking, singing, writing, thinking, groaning, or gesturing in faith to God. It may be done while standing, sitting, kneeling, bowing. It may be done with eyes closed or open. It may be done with simultaneous speaking, where, as I said of the apostles, they all lifted up their voices together. Or it may be done with silent listening, taking turns talking and expressing our agreement to God with whomever is speaking. When we tend to use the ancient word, it's the most ancient word we have in our language, by the way, the Hebrew word, amen. We use that to verbalize agreement with people when we're listening to them pray. It's like, God, yes, he hears you. And by the way, I'm listening to what he's saying, and God, amen. I agree with that, Lord. (laughs) Please, may it be so. So we, we've shown that the act of prayer can take many forms, and it can engage us in different ways, and it must be done in faith. But are there any other boundaries or definitions on what makes true biblical prayer? And how can we improve our own personal prayer lives and then see that improvement make its way into our family worship so that we can teach it to our children? hope you uh, have been baited well because I think this is actually going to be a good stopping point for night one. And I'd like to tackle all my own remaining questions next Monday. I really want to zero in on the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew 6. I want to zero in on what prayer can look like and how simple it can be, how easy and attainable it can be, and how we can do way more of it. I mean, many of you guys are probably praying more than I am. I'm going to admit that. So how much I can do more of it to start. But for now, let's, let's go ahead and pray and close. Father in heaven, help us pray. May your words fill our hearts and teach us what prayer is. May we continue to increase as a church that loves to seek you in prayer. And may we see afresh how intriguing and how earnest and how simple and attainable and fulfilling prayer can be. When we could be silent, Holy Spirit, prompt us, please, to put ourselves out there and start speaking. When we could be afraid we're doing it wrong, help us see how to do it right and proceed with confidence to the throne of mercy where we can find help in time of need. Because of Jesus' authority, based on his imputed righteousness, I ask this. Amen. All right, hopefully I kept it short and sweet. Um, as is tradition.